0: Hey Irish fans, this is Alex Painter here to remind you that if you or your company has screen printing or embroidery needs, look no further than our pals at wcscreens.com. Nationwide shipping? Check. Wholesale pricing? Absolutely. They are indeed the gold standard of the industry and fervent supporters of this show. And of course, you're fighting Irish. So give them a holler at wcscreens.com. And on with the show. has become something of a tradition around here. Onward to Victory is excited to present the fifth part of the Notre Dame in the Civil War series. Today's episode will focus heavily on the indelible contributions of the sisters from St. Mary's College, then known as St. Mary's Academy, who served as battlefield nurses during the war. Also, as a pleasant bonus, we're going to talk about a certain Thomas Bola A man with both close connections to the University of Notre Dame and the famous Underground Railroad. So pull up a locker room stool and buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello Irish fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and this is episode number 76 of the most exhaustive, accessible source of Notre Dame football history since 2019. As I sit here and record this episode, it is February 2023 and I hope everyone is enjoying their off season to the best of their ability. Uh, A bit of a shameless plug, the show's last offering about the legacy of former Irish quarterback Ian Book might tide you over for just a little bit. Not only was it a fun episode to kind of pull together, but it was really quite a pleasure to dig into the history of the quarterbacks of Notre Dame. And uh, I may have incidentally made a strong case that Ian may be the best of all Irish quarterbacks. And since my head wasn't carried off on a pike, I assume perhaps some of you may either agree... Or at least entertain the notion. Either way, it was fun, informative, so please go give it a listen. And while you're going back into the show archives, there is no better time to like, subscribe, or do whatever it is that you have to do to make sure that you are receiving all of the show's latest offerings and you're alerted when they drop. So as I mentioned in the episode lead, a show tradition continues with a fifth installment of the Notre Dame in the Civil War series. If you're a bit new around here, or if this is your first Notre Dame in the Civil War episode, then please, by all means, check out any of the following episodes after this. So from 2020, we had episode 14, which was part one, about Notre Dame student-turned-soldier Frank Baldwin, who rose to the rank of a commissioned officer before sadly being killed in action at the Battle of Stones River in 1863. Episode 15 was about The famous Father Corby and the Irish Brigade. Corby, who would later become Notre Dame's president, is forever immortalized on both the Gettysburg battlefield and Notre Dame campus with a statue known as Faircatch Corby. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Of course you are. And then the following episode, episode number 16, was about Union General William Tecumseh Sherman's relationship with the university including sending a child to the school and delivering a commencement address shortly after the war ended in 1865. Part four or episode 38 was released in 2021, about two years ago, actually. And it was about the Pinkerton family who around this time, there was no family more associated with spying and daring espionage missions than the Pinkertons. And who would have thought they actually had a very close tie to the University of Notre Dame? So, given the show's mission, we intersect quite frequently with the American Civil War. So, alas, here we are with part five of the Notre Dame in the Civil War series. I also thought this afforded us a really nice opportunity to talk about St. Mary's College. And also, I have to give the assist on this one to listener Chris Kozicki. His daughter is actually a nursing student at St. Mary's now and kind of tipped me off to it late last year that this might be a good episode idea. And as a bit of a tag along to the St. Mary's story, uh, we're going to also focus a bit on a gentleman named Thomas Bola, who had this really close connections to both Notre Dame and the famous Underground Railroad. I'll also share why I have a particularly personal affinity for Mr. Bola as well. But let's start with St. Mary's College, or as it was known then, St. Mary's Academy. First, right out of the chute, many may not realize that St. Mary's is almost as old as Notre Dame itself. And for some of you who may be at home or in the car saying, what is St. Mary's? Well, for the sake of ease, it is right across the street from the University of Notre Dame and is a small, all-women's liberal arts college. And yes, it is almost as old as Notre Dame itself. It was officially founded in 1844 just two years after Father Edward Soren founded Notre Dame. And it was Soren and four sisters of the Holy Cross who founded what would soon become St. Mary's Academy. Now, the original St. Mary's was not contiguous or adjacent to Notre Dame as it is today. No, actually, the original site was at a rented house in Bertrand, Michigan, six miles north of South Bend. That I did not realize. And the first students were a handful of girls who were orphaned, but the Academy grew slowly. And 11 years later in 1855, it moved to South Bend for good after purchasing 185 acres. And thus, Notre Dame's sister college then sat in much closer proximity to Notre Dame. And of course, as I mentioned, this also happens to be the school's present day site. It was also in 1855 that St. Mary's was granted the accreditation to confer degrees or diplomas upon her pupils. But the first diploma would not be awarded until 1898. While the school didn't have a formal president during its first few decades, Mother Angela Gillespie served as the first directus, so I suppose the female version of director of the academy. Mother Angela also happened to be the cousin of Ellen Ewing Sherman, who was the wife of future Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. Small world, right? But also a reminder of how the school may have crossed the Sherman's purview in the first place. St. Mary's was then, and still is today, a women's only school. During the 1850s and 1860s, most if not all of the instructors at the academy were nuns, Additionally, similar to Notre Dame and priests, women who would study to become nuns also attended St. Mary's, as well as students who ultimately had other vocations as well. By the turn of the 20th century, St. Mary's boasted a fine conservatory of music, an arts program, as well as coursework in foreign languages, as well as typing and stenography. But back to the Civil War here. So the war itself, after decades of compromise and political maneuverings, finally and formally broke out on April 12, 1861 with the Confederate attack on Federal-held Fort Sumter in the Charleston, South Carolina Harbor. Once news of war spread around the country, tens of thousands of men and boys, both north and south, sprinted towards their local recruiting stations to enlist. Also, not for nothing, conservative estimates tell us that anywhere between 400 and 750 females also enlisted, disguised as men. Let's talk about a gutsy move. But war fever also hit Notre Dame's campus as well. Dozens of men and boys headed home to enlist in the Union Army. And at least two boys went home and enlisted in the Confederate Army as well. The war would have caused quite a ruckus about a mile down the road at St. Mary's, but several months passed before they received their marching orders. Now, why would that be? Why would it be several months before word had been sent to St. Mary's? Well, here's my best guess and something that you also must understand about the American Civil War. When it broke out, nearly all the Union soldiers only signed three-month or 90-day enlistment papers. Most figured that the war would be one big flashbang, one side would win the grand battle, and it would be over. This was evidenced by the fact that at the first major land engagement of the war, the Battle of First Bull Run in July of 1861, the spectators came out in droves, almost as if they were taking in a show or an opera. They came armed with picnic baskets, bottles of champagne, and binoculars. They were intent on watching some glorious battle unfold. Knowing what we know about the American Civil War now, can you even imagine? So when the Confederate Army routed the Union Army that day, everyone ran back to Washington, D.C. in total chaos, both soldier and spectator alike. So given these initial attitudes towards the conflict, it was likely that from the outset of the war, that potentially tending to tens of thousands of casualties or building the infrastructure to handle that was not something folks gave much mind to. So when Indiana Governor Oliver P. Morton wrote Father Soren in October of 1861, Soren immediately walked over to St. Mary's and asked for Mother Angela. Within just a few hours, Mother Angela and five other nuns were on a train bound for Cairo, Illinois. They actually left so abruptly that Father Soren penned a message to the entire campus to explain their departure. And I believe this to be primo Father Soren right here. In the message, Father Soren shared that Governor Morton had asked for 12 sisters to, quote, attend the sick, wounded, and dying soldiers. Wherever there is a pain to soothe, a pang to relieve, a bleeding heart or limb to treat and dress, there is a field for us to enter. Such is the field now opened by the calamity of our land. A little band of devoted sisters, ministering like angels amidst the soldiery, will do away with prejudices and show the beauty and resources of our faith to support man in all possible trials. End quote. Mother Angela and the contingency of nuns was quickly attached to the command of General Ulysses S. Grant, And that name probably rings a bell, but in the rare event that it doesn't, he would soon become a famous, perhaps the most famous Union general, which he would later parlay into two terms in the White House as president. Grant had nothing but the nicest things to say about the sisters from St. Mary's. He did, however, reserve some of his highest praise for Mother Angela herself, whom he called a woman of, quote, rare charm of manner, unusual ability and exceptional executive talents. The sisters arrived in Illinois and were quickly assigned to a hospital in Mound City. The following is an excerpt from the Sisters of Holy Cross website. What awaited them were conditions of nightmarish proportion, men writhing in excruciating pain, blood splattered walls, too many wounded and too few to care for them. While they may have been appalled at first, the sisters did not shirk. They dried their tears, pinned up their habits, and set to work. In time, they transformed what were often dilapidated warehouses into hospitals worthy of praise. The facility in Mound City, Illinois, in fact, was said to have had the reputation as the best military hospital in the United States. Quote. Mother Angela returned to South Bend in December of 1861 to gather even more Holy Cross Nurses from St. Mary's. It is of note that by the time the war was over in 1865, the Sister Nurses from St. Mary's were serving in 10 different hospitals across the entire country. These Sister Nurses from St. Mary's gathered huge esteem for their tireless work ethic, tenderness in tending the sick and injured, as well as their top-notch administrative abilities as well. They seemed to just kind of innately understand the complexities of running a successful and efficient field hospital. This would, of course, be an incredibly stressful and even traumatic work environment, particularly after a major battle. And they had to earn it the hard way, too. The nuns were routinely mistreated by the male field doctors, but their steadfastness to the work and devotion to the mission gained them much admiration. But... It wasn't only the field doctors either. Dorothea Dix, who was the superintendent of the nursing corps for the entire Union Army, didn't trust the sisters as far as she could throw them. Rightfully so, Dorothea is remembered fondly as not only the superintendent of the Army nurses, but also as an early advocate for mental health, the reform of mental health facilities, and an advocate for better treatment of the patients using the facilities. As progressive as she was for her time, she was politically aligned with the nativist, who had a major distrust of Catholics and immigrants. In fact, Dix didn't hire any Catholic sisters to work for, and she encouraged her circle to do the same. And I don't bring this up to disparage Dorothea Dix. Uh, Though a major progressive figure for an era in many respects, she was still very much a person of her time, I raise this to drive home the idea that these women had to combat prejudice to succeed in their pursuit of army nursing during this time. And succeed they did. Susan Wallace, the wife of Union General Lou Wallace, who would later gain worldwide acclaim as the author of the classic Ben-Hur in 1880, wrote the following to her mother in December of 1861. Quote, Mother Angela of St. Mary's Academy has come with 30 nurses, a flock of white doves, to nurse in hospitals where the stillness is like the silence of death. When lay women get tired, they go home. But the Sisters of the Holy Cross live among the patients without thought of avoiding contagion by flight. End quote. So, based on the timing of this quote, we know that Mother Angela initially went to Illinois with five nurses in October, came home to South Bend and then returned with at least 25 more. The Sisters of Holy Cross from St. Mary's weren't destined to be a footnote in history either. When the Federal Navy captured the Confederate steamer, the Red Rover, in 1862, they decided to turn it into the very first floating hospital and medical facility. The Holy Cross Sister Nurses immediately volunteered to staff the ship. According to Naval Department historian E. Kent Loomis, when they climbed aboard the ship on Christmas Eve of 1862, they may truly be said to be the pioneers or forerunners of the United States Navy Corps as they were the first female nurses carried on board a United States Navy hospital ship. In short, I think these women are truly incredible. And how can we all, I suppose, not feel that particular way? But I have to give props to the book that I found a lot of this information in. And every time I do one of these episodes, I always make sure I give it some praise. But the book is called Notre Dame and the Civil War, Marching Onward to Victory. It was written in 2010 by James M. Schmidt, which again, by the way, I can't recommend enough if you enjoy these episodes. Uh, Pick up a copy if you'd like. They're available pretty much at all online booksellers. And Frankly, I'd love to meet uh, James one of these days as well. But anyway, this passage summed it up well, and I found it in Schmidt's book. But he was able to locate it in a story of 50 years from the annals of the Congregation of the Sisters of Holy Cross, 1855 to 1905. Long title, but essentially that is the College of uh, St. Mary's 50th anniversary publication from way back in 1905. Quote, seemingly lost in the Holy Cross's sister's Tale of four years of tender ministrations to the sick and dying is the story of a strong woman who led the original band after the first call in October 1861, Mother Angela. The lack of a personal account belies her tireless activity. She might be found scrubbing floors or assisting in surgery, but even behind the scenes, Mother Angela was exercising her considerable influence and executive abilities by placing trusted subordinates in charge of other hospitals and writing friends, strangers, officers, and politicians for supplies. Perhaps, though, it was her example of confidence and humility that did the most good. There are some people who can inspire others to do what, ordinarily speaking, is impossible. Mother Angela was one of those, one sister wrote. Her faith and courage never recognize limitations. Hence the nature, the magnitude of her achievements and those of her sisters. End quote. Whew, that was good. So the next time you're driving down Indiana State Road 933 and you spot St. Mary's College, which sits directly adjacent to Holy Cross College and of course, again, right across the street from the Notre Dame campus, remember the impact on the war effort by Mother Angela Gillespie and the rest of the St. Mary's sister nurses. And we'll be right back with Thomas Bola in the Underground Railroad, right after this. Alright, let's rock and roll and start us with a question here. You ever park in the Bola lot during football games or concerts at Notre Dame? Well, that's the namesake of none other than the family of the man we are going to discuss. That of a certain Thomas Bola. Bola being B-U-L-L-A. And this one actually hits home for me here. As our hero Thomas Bola was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1804 before his family made the quick jaunt to Richmond, Indiana shortly thereafter. Uh, I live in Richmond, and have for the past 15 years or so. But the Bullas heading to Richmond makes actually a ton of sense. They were Quakers, and they were taking part in the Great Quaker Migration around this time, during which hundreds of Quaker families made their way to Richmond or a variety of other East Central Indiana locations, uh, I can speak from firsthand experience that Quakerism still has a pretty strong hold on Richmond, and this included the founding of a small college in the city, and my alma mater, Earlham College, home of the, you guessed it, Quakers. Anyway, Thomas's father, William, married into the Hoover family, who still has roots in Richmond to this day. The Hoovers are widely regarded as among the first settlers of the area. This was back in the early 1800s, so they're actually some of the first settlers in Indiana, the entire state. So the Bolas, as well as the Hoovers, are also Quaker again and staunch abolitionists. So those are the folks who wanted to abolish slavery. But while in Richmond, Thomas trained himself as a teacher in one of those infamous one-room schoolhouses. But as a teacher, he had a lasting influence on his students. One such pupil was a and named George Washington Julian, who would later serve six terms as a United States congressman and a fierce opponent to the institution of slavery. It is while Bulla is in Richmond that he first begins to take an active part in helping the runaway enslaved escape. So in 1823, Thomas's father William was actually pinched for helping an enslaved man named George Shelton escape. And he didn't just help him escape. He actually also pummeled the guy who was trying to catch George as he, quote, caught the catcher by the back of the neck and threw him across the room, end quote. So William scores a few cool points here for me, but he was actually fined $1,000 by a judge for interfering with the slave catcher. $1,000. So again, this is our man Thomas's father. But $1,000 in 1823, so exactly 200 years ago, is approximately $25,000 in today's money. The judge was clearly trying to ruin William and the rest of the Bullas and make something of an example out of them. But in October of 1832, Thomas left Richmond and went to South Bend after purchasing 160 acres in the town. And he added farmer to his list of occupations and skills. So teacher and farmer. And when he moved to South Bend, his land was actually adjacent to Father Stephen Baden, who was the first Catholic priest ordained in America. Rest assured, that's important. It's going to come into play here soon. But Thomas's home in South Bend would soon also become a hotbed of underground railroad activity as it had in Richmond. But what is worth noting is that when Bola moved to South Bend, there were probably fewer than... A 1,000 people living there, considering the census taken almost two decades later puts the town at just over 1,600. So we are talking very remote, very much in the thick of the northern Indiana wilderness, South Bend. But since Thomas is well-educated and, of course, intelligent, he is soon named the St. Joseph County Surveyor in 1836, Teacher, Farmer, Surveyor. Uh, This is a position he held for almost two decades, according to Notre Dame professor of law, Sean O'Brien, in an article called The Station Master from a 2017 issue of Notre Dame magazine, which, by the way, if any of this keenly interests you, I would certainly recommend that you read O'Brien's article. But he wrote, quote, many of the early surveys in the county bear Bulla's name. Major developers and landowners hired Bola to draw their holdings. So, when Father Baden's land was offered to a young upstart French priest in the early 1840s named Father Edward Sorin to start a Catholic school on, well, soon Bola had new neighbors, which would soon become the University of Notre Dame. And Bola soon became good friends with Soren, and they were always kindly towards one another. Though Quakerism and the Disciples of Christ, which Bola had later converted, and Catholicism certainly have their theological differences, or at least I imagine they do. I'm not as well-versed in the Disciples of Christ. But the two men respected each other, and they respected each other's deep-seated morals and principles. And they remained friends for the next 40 years four years, all the while neighbors. But in 1850, less than a decade after the founding of Notre Dame, so of course Notre Dame is founded and Bola is still living adjacent to Notre Dame, the United States Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. This is one of those pre-Civil War compromises that attempted to band-aid the major issue of slavery and, in all reality, keep an eventual war that seemingly everybody knew was coming at bay for at least a few more years. Basically, and I mean basically, it went like this. It required that all escaped slaves, upon capture, even if it was in states where the institution of slavery was outlawed, so basically the North, uh, they must be returned to the slaver, and that officials and citizens of free states that... Didn't cooperate would be punished. Everyone had to cooperate. As Professor O'Brien shares in his article, quote, Personal liberty laws, the uneven application of a previous Fugitive Slave Act and Supreme Court decisions led to the even more draconian Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This version imposed jail time and doubled the penalties on people like Bola and required citizens to aid in the capture of fugitive slaves. End quote. What a piece of legislation that was! Needless to say, the abolitionists, such as Bulla mobilized and many doubled down on their efforts as underground railroad station masters after the Fugitive Slave Act. So. I'll interrupt myself here briefly just to kind of throw out some terminology here that maybe you're not familiar with. I keep using the term station master. Well, for the Underground Railroad, which was, again, a clandestine network to harbor fugitive slaves to their freedom, the station master was someone who actually hid slaves in his or her residence. But tracks were referred to as kind of the route of the Underground Railroad. Stations or depots were hiding places Conductors were the guides on the Underground Railroad, so like, say, uh, Harriet Tubman-type agents were sympathizers who helped the enslaved connect to the railroad, so people who kind of put you in touch with the right people to get you into the network. So that's some of the parlance, if you will, surrounding the Underground Railroad. But no doubt Bola was an active participant in harboring the escaped enslaved and shuffling them to the next stop. And, you know, I'd like to think that, given the proximity to his beloved campus, that Father Soren at this time must have had at least an inkling of some of this illicit activity that was going on. And given that Bola was never caught, we can probably deduce that he may have gotten some help from his Irish neighbors. Or, at the very least, their lips were sealed in complicity. So the Civil War ended in 1865, and slavery was abolished for good. And Bola remained the closest neighbors with Sorin and Notre Dame. O'Brien describes the nature of the family's relationship with the university as cordial and more than casual. He points to old issues of the Scholastic, which is of course the student newspaper, to kind of reinforce this. There's one where... Uh, has a story that Bola helped the students pull a nearly three-foot fish out of the St. Joseph's Lake. Bola also sent his two sons to Notre Dame as students. His son Milton graduated in 1865, and his other son Thomas, Thomas Jr., I suppose, graduated in 1867. And back in episode 63, we discussed the Great Fire of April 23rd, 1879 on campus, which torched the then main building, which then of course allowed for the university to build the current main building with the famous Golden Dome atop. But the Bolas actually opened their home to the campus community during this incredibly difficult time. Professor O'Brien also sleuthed that, quote, university records indicate financial ties between Bola and Notre Dame. Perhaps the Bolas sold crops to the university to feed its growing student population, or even Mrs. Bola's woven linen shirts, made from flax grown on their property, kept the students clothed. End quote. Thomas Bola died on December 1st, 1886. The school paper reported in their December 4th issue that quote, the deceased had, for 30 or more years, up to the year 1865 followed the occupation of a farmer near Notre Dame and educated his sons at the university, Milton and Thomas, of course. He was well-known and respected as a good man and citizen, and his demise is mourned by a large circle of friends." So, you may be asking yourself, where is Bola's Farmhouse today? This is again where Professor O'Brien comes in with a major assist. And I'll give you a hint. It's actually not at the building that is today called the Bola Farmhouse, which, of course, as you may guess, resides near the Bola lot, where, again, some of you may park on football Saturdays. But rather, it's approximately at the modern-day sites of Flanner and Grace Halls. Though the original farmhouse has long been demolished, it is of note that the site itself is only about a four-minute walk to the north from the Hesburg Library and about a six-minute walk to the east from the main building and the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. So when I say they were neighbors, they really were neighbors. And I think it's really interesting to, again, harken back to the fact that it is little doubt that perhaps some on notre dame's campus understood and knew what was going on at the bola farmhouse which was of course notre dame's own hotbed of abolitionist activity and stop on the underground railroad and i'll be right back with show rap Right. I hope you enjoyed that romp. Part 5 of Onward to Victory's Notre Dame in the Civil War series. I don't even know what part 6 is going to bring, but I know it's going to be just as much fun as it was here today. So... Uh, that was great. It afforded me the opportunity to learn a lot about Notre Dame's sister college in St. Mary's. Perhaps a lot of us drive past it and of course are aware of its existence, but don't really have much of a sense of its history. So was glad to at least peel back a couple layers on that, particularly as it pertains to their involvement in the American Civil War. But also, I got to tell you, I first stepped foot on Notre Dame's campus in 2013 on a work trip when I was 26 years old, and I was able to return a ton over the years because i work took me to south bend and now of course i'm able to take my kids to football games and just on little vacations to south bend but i guess the point in me saying that is i have uh, been blessed with the opportunity and the opportunities over the especially the last decade to visit visit that campus a whole lot and i know it really well and so it's really awesome to be able to now the next time i go up there i know Where I'm heading, I have to figure out the original site of that Bola farmhouse and just, again, envision and, and picture all of the incredibly courageous work that that family did for the enslaved people and for the Underground Railroad. So... I will be up there uh, checking that out here very soon, spring game possibly. So i got to say I've got a couple episodes still yet before I talk about the spring game in April. I'll do a State of the Union address similar to last year, but before that... We're going to do a baseball episode. I know this is a football podcast, but Notre Dame baseball has some absolutely fascinating chapters and absolutely fascinating stories and people that have been involved with the program that need, and I mean need, some time in the sun. So we're going to do, and and also it kind of ties in with spring training and baseball and all that. So there will be a Notre Dame baseball episode, and I know you're going to love it. And then also, I was at the Clemson game this past year with my wife, and we had just the time of our lives. And I know there's a lot in the audience who may not live in the Midwest or who maybe haven't had an opportunity to go to a football game at Notre Dame Stadium. So I'm putting together a firsthand account of our time that weekend for the Clemson game And hopefully we can all kind of relive other than just like a great football game, uh, a chance for those who maybe haven't had an opportunity to experience game day at Notre Dame. I would just really like to kind of maybe convey some of those feelings and some of those memories. And I don't know. I just thought it might make a cool episode. I hope you're going to enjoy it. So, uh. So that's coming as well. So that's also my cue to say, hey, if you haven't liked and subscribed to the podcast, make sure you have done that to make sure you are alerted to all of the newest offerings and really happy that you were able to hopefully uh, enjoy this episode here today. And this episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by the show's Consensus All-Americans, those who support the effort here with their monetary donations. And they include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. I am eternally grateful for every last one of you, your support, both past, present, and future, whatever it may be. Uh, and I am serious. The show wouldn't be able to continue without these folks' generous support. And also a very special thank you to WCScreens.com, our banner sponsor for yet another year here in 2023, as well as Joseph Rakish, who wrote the song Canute Rockney," which serves as our theme song. So thank you very much. Give it a spin. It's pretty much available wherever you listen to your music. And with that, I am going to sign off here on episode number 76. The fifth part of the Notre Dame in the Civil War series. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.